Pastor Scott, the lead pastor of New Life Church, began a five-week series a couple Sundays ago, right outside on the, the yard out here. And that series is on our identity as a church, on our identity as New Life Church. It's based on the book of Colossians, and we're going to be exploring four core values that make up our identity. If you don't already have a copy of our identity booklet, it used to look like this, kind of brown. Now it looks like this, all right? And there's a couple stacks of these out in the foyer. If you don't have one of these, I'd encourage you to pick one up. We have changed a couple of words in in this, a couple of more action verbs in that, but I'd encourage you to to pick up one of those and read through that in detail. And you'll what you'll discover in this booklet is that we have basically four core values that are the foundation, that are the kind of the the underpinning of who we are as a church and what our identity is. Last week, your pastor, Travis, preached on one of those four identities. He preached on we serve as a team. This morning, Travis is at the Westland campus doing the exact same thing there. Last week while he was here, I was there preaching on we live life together. Uh, The other two values are we need the gospel and we engage as missionaries. So there's uh, further information about that in these booklets. And again, I would encourage you to, to check that out. Next week, uh, Taylor will be back here, not to lead music, but to preach. And then Eric will be here the following week. And so we're, we're doing kind of a flip-flop back and forth. In 2013, the Japanese ramen noodle fast food chain, Ichiran, brought its concept of what they called the ramen focus booth to Hong Kong. Eating at a table for one, along a wall of similar tables, separated by partitions. Well, since then, the growing demand led to the company opening a second outlet in Hong Kong. And then finally, when Ichiran opened in Taipei, Taiwan, four years later, there was a line of customers waiting to get in to experience this for 240 hours. That's 10 days straight to simply sit at a booth and face the wall, and eat your top ramen. Well, their public relations and marketing officer was quoted as saying, our layout design helps customers focus on the food without having worries about their surroundings. Well, from ramen focus booths to solo karaoke uh, cubicles to phone apps that mimic human interaction, the Chinese are devising solutions to help them fight loneliness. But, you know, it's interesting. Loneliness is not unique to simply Asian countries. In fact, uh, in the free-thinking and so-called progressive land of my grandfathers, Sweden, a recent documentary aired entitled, How Do You Stop a Plague of Loneliness? Viewers watched as investigators knock on a door, enter a debris-filled apartment, and then discover the remains of a man who hanged himself. A man nobody discovered for two years. Because nobody came to check. And because Sweden's ever-present automatic bill pay system never stopped debiting his rent. Off camera, gazing out a window, one of the investigators was quoted as saying, sometimes I wonder why we are so unhappy 
There's nothing to glue us together. Well, the former Surgeon General of the United States, Dr. Vivek Murthy, was the first to call loneliness an epidemic. He's quoted as saying, loneliness causes an insidious type of stress that leads to chronic inflammation and increased risk of heart disease and arthritis and diabetes. Loneliness has the same effect on mortality as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Loneliness. Additional recent headlines from major U.S. news providers reinforce this dilemma. Young people report more loneliness than the elderly. The biggest threat facing middle-aged men isn't smoking or obesity, it's loneliness. Or social isolation kills more people than obesity. Well, why, why should we care? What's the point of even talking about this? Well, Americans are lonelier than ever. Even though opportunities for social connection have exponentially increased, we've got affordable phone calls, you can text, you can email, uh, various other social media, Twitter, Instagram, you have it, Facebook, but yet we're talking to each other less. Despite the prevalence of car ownership and the low cost of cross-country uh, air travel, uh, we're spending less time with our families. After decades of bowling leagues, Americans began bowling alone. In fact, there was a book written by that title, Bowling Alone. Well, today, in this age of social media, we're not even bowling, right? We're scrolling alone. We're not merely individuals in need of autonomy and self-esteem. We are persons in community. We're wired we're hardwired for deep relational connection. In fact, a researcher at UCLA has recently been applying functional magnetic resource imaging, MRI, to questions of relationships and questions about community and has repeatedly reinforced this conclusion that our brains are hardwired to connect with other people. These are intelligent design features that God has built into who we are as human beings. In other words, both the soft and even the hard sciences agree. We are relational beings, and we're designed to connect to one another. And in ways that go beyond just a Sunday morning connection like this, although this is wonderful, this is great, but we're designed for so much more. And especially if we claim to follow Jesus, He demands so much more of us in terms of how we uh, relate to each other. Well, not surprisingly, the Scriptures, the Bible, have a lot to say about this very topic. In this, uh, in this Mission and Vision booklet, as well as our church's website, uh, we elaborate further on what we mean when we say, we live life together. Our mutual commitment to Christ leads us to love and value one another. We've got three specific bullet points. One says we are committed to a life group. Because of who we are, our identity, we're committed to a life group. We show hospitality and we share meals together. We are close enough to each other to frustrate one another. <laughs> and if you're in a life group, you know exactly what we mean by that statement. In fact, if you're married, you know exactly what we mean by that statement. And then the booklet goes on to talk about uh, five pillars for our life groups. In fact, this is also on, a, uh, on a, a display out here that's hanging on the wall right by the door. 
we use food and fellowship and prayer and the Word of God and mission to connect us together. That's how we live life together in life groups. We eat together. We talk with each other together around the table. We fellowship. We pray together over specific needs like we prayed this morning. Uh, for specific needs within this community. We study the, uh, the, the Word of God together. And then we go on mission together. Well, this is, this is part of our identity. And I, I love this graphic because it shows the thumbprint. The thumbprint of New Life Church, the identity of New Life Church, is made up with several things, but this morning we're going to focus on this aspect of living life together. So let's look at the text together. It's Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. I would invite you, if you have a, your Bible with you, open it to Colossians 3. If you're using a digital version, then turn it on and scroll to Colossians 3. And we're going to look specifically at verses 12 through 17. I'm also going to have it up on the, uh, on the screen as well that you can follow along with that. But let me read this passage to us verse by verse, beginning in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Again, this is our identity. This is who we are as a church. And within the context of this chapter, actually within the context of the book of Colossians, but especially here in the context of chapter 3, Paul first begins by talking about stripping off, literally taking something off, taking our, uh, the, the clothing items off of the old self. He talks about this in verse 9. If you have your Bible open, just glance back up there at verse 9. He's talking about stripping off those old sinful practices. And then here in verse 12, he begins to say, and in place of that, uh, put on these items of clothing. He's literally using the, the, the terminology that you would use to speak of putting on clothes, putting on clothes in the morning. We all did that this morning. In a sense, um, as Eugene Peterson says in, in a paraphrase, it's, it's like this putting on a new wardrobe. That's the whole sense of what Paul is talking about here in these verses. And this wardrobe describes what is necessary to live life together within a community. It speaks of us as being new people. It speaks of us having a new identity. It's, it, it says that God has created all of this. In fact, look, look at verse 11. This really is kind of the, the, the end of verse 11 is, is really the, the best statement of the whole passage. Christ is all. And in all. 
And so what Paul is talking about here is that Christ is preeminent, and he's preeminent even in, in how we deal with each other, how we live together. So let's look back at verse 12, and let's begin to kind of walk through these verses, because I want to unpack them a little bit more for you to give you something more to sink your teeth into. So in verse 12, our identity is based on three actions initiated by God Himself. These aren't things that we can do on our own. These are things that are initiated by God. We are chosen ones. We are holy. And we are beloved. Those three terms, those three words, are reminiscent of a declaration made by Moses. Do you remember before the people of Israel went into the land of promise, and Moses, their leader, he knew he wasn't going to go? He wasn't going to be allowed to go into the land. And so he assembles the people on the plains of Moab, east of the Jordan River. And he basically reiterates, or he repeats, the first four books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And he does it in what we call the book of Deuteronomy. So in Deuteronomy chapter 7, here's what he says. He's saying to the people, you're about to go into this land of promise. You are a people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you. You're His treasured possession. Why? Because, verse 7, because the Lord set His love on you and chose you. Not because you were the greatest of people. He says you, you were the least of people. In other words, you didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. You can't buy it. It's, it's God's choice. And because God loves you, verse 8, the Lord loves you and is keeping an oath that He kept, that He swore to your fathers. So, here, Paul in Colossians 3 is drawing the audience's attention, the, the Christians in Colossae, he's drawing their attention back to these great promises made by Moses in Deuteronomy 7. But these same three words, they also point to a new reality that we are a part of. Moses was speaking to a nation, the nation of Israel. Peter, in 1 Peter 2.9, says this, You are a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And then in verse 10, he says, Once you were not a people, but now you were God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. When Peter makes those declarations, again, he's referencing what Moses had said. Peter is making the point, though, that this isn't just Jews now. This is a new identity. This is a new group of people. God's church. The bride of Christ. Made up of Jews and Gentiles. Fortunately... Because I'm not Jewish. And many of you, most of you probably aren't either. And so, But as Gentiles, we're, we've been brought into this. And so these terms, chosen ones, holy, beloved, our identity is first and foremost laid on the foundation of God's initiation. He, he initiates these. We can't do that ourselves. But then he invites us to participate. Look at verse uh, 11 in Colossians 3. He says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. In other words, whatever our worldly background might be, we all now have a fundamental identity change, and it's determined by Christ, and it's, it's enhanced by the people of Christ with whom we we live life together, to whom we belong. Shakespeare wrote, Apparel oft proclaims the man. Say what? Well, 
we say, clothes make the man, or clothes make the woman. You've heard that phrase, right? Well, let's take a closer look at this wardrobe for living life together and how Paul describes it. How do we dress for success in community? How do we dress for success to live life together? Well, the pagan Greek philosopher Aristotle studied the human qualities that help us flourish and help us excel, and he called them virtues. Well, the Bible speaks, specifically Paul speaks here in Colossians 3, about five virtues. He lists five virtues there in verse 12. It's also interesting to note, though, before we look at these in detail, it's interesting to note that um, in Romans 13, 14, Paul also says that we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to put them on, as if same kind of terminology, as if we're putting clothing on. We're, we're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, these Five virtues in uh, Colossians 3.12, they're not just personal attributes. They're actually, you could say, qualities of Christ. And so as we, as we put on the, the various virtues that we're going to look at here, we're actually putting on Christ. And each one of them points to interpersonal relationships. It doesn't point to just something that I retain, I possess, and it's all about me. No, you'll notice all five of these virtues that Paul enumerates deal with how we relate to each other, interpersonal relationships. good friend of mine, former pastor of mine, um, I love a, a, a quote that he repeatedly says when he's teaching, preaching. Christ-like transformation occurs best within the context of community. Don't you love that? Can Christ transform our lives if we're, we're out in the desert all by ourselves, like the desert fathers were centuries ago? Sure, but it occurs best as men and women rub up against each other, right? As iron sharpens iron. Christ-like transformation occurs best within the context of community. Well, let's look at these five. The first one is, uh, is listed here as, as compassionate hearts. If you have a King James Version, it might say, it, it does say, bowels of compassion. It's like, what? Excuse me? Intestines of compassion? Bowels of compassion? Well, yeah, exactly. Because the Hebrews thought that the, that's where the seed of emotions and even, even the will and decision-making was, was, in, was in your bowels. Think about it. When you, when you see something that is really troubling, or even mundane, like you're driving down the road and you see a cat go running across the, if you're a cat lover, you see a cat go running across the street and you see another car coming, where, where do you feel? Where do you feel that? You feel it in your gut. It's like, huh, because you, you know what's about to happen, right? That's exactly what, what Paul is saying here. He says, I want you to have that kind of heart. I want you to have that kind of compassion. And it's, it's deep-seated. It's, it's down here. Now, I'm not one to, to throw around a lot of Greek and Hebrew terms. I can, but I won't. But I'll, I'll throw one out because it's my favorite. All right? This term here that's translated heart in our Bibles or bowels is the Greek term shplachnon. Don't you just love that? It just kind of rolls right off the tongue, right? Shplachnon. I just love, I don't know, something. I just love that term. But it, but it speaks of this, this deep-seated um, emotion. Now, when Paul wrote about having compassion or mercy there, that was so countercultural. The Romans were notorious for sloughing off to the side older people that were ill and near death. Even children born with 
deformities. They would be carried out to the walls of the city and left to die. Um, if you had some sort of a handicap or something, you would be pushed off to the side. So when Paul talks about, no, 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 we're to have compassionate hearts, merciful hearts, deep-seated, it, 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 was, uh, it was countercultural. I saw this week a tweet by Tim Keller, the former uh, pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City. He said, the opposite of love is not anger, it's indifference. I thought, wow, that's interesting because... What Paul is talking about here, what he's looking for, is is way opposite from indifference. It's having a deep-seated compassion, an aching concern from deep within. And when you think about that, think of who the best model for that is. It's Jesus. In the Gospels, in Matthew 9 or Mark chapter 14, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had what? He had compassion on them. It came from deep-seated. So that's the first of these five virtues. The second one is kindness. This is a kind of uh, gentleness. It's actually one of the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians chapter 5. It's that virtue of the, of the man or, or the woman whose neighbor's good is as dear to him as his own. It's a kind of sweet goodness. You think of the Good Samaritan who went out of his way and across a, a racial divide in order to meet the needs of someone in in great need. And Jesus, in fact, uses him as the example of who is my neighbor. The third virtue that Paul mentions here in verse 12 is humility. And this speaks of a humbleness of mind or a modesty. Once again, it's modeled by Jesus. Philippians chapter 2 talks about how Jesus is our model for how we are to be humble towards one another. For us, it applies in this way. It's, it's a deep sense of knowing that God is God and I'm not. And knowing, therefore, my place in relationship to Him. Now, this was not a positive concept in the Greek culture of Paul's day. In fact, they didn't even have a word for it. He's using a term that they weren't even used to. They wouldn't understand what he was talking about. Because it was not something that they... Uh, looked to apply in their lives in the pagan Greek culture of that day. The fourth virtue that Paul mentions is meekness. And as as you read through these, and even as you hear me define them in a little more detail, you'll see that they're they're very synonymous. They, They work together like hand and glove. This also speaks of a gentleness, a mildness. It too is listed as a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. It's that quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. You ever been there? You know, maybe you're really proficient at something, and it's like, yeah, I'm all that. I know that. I get that. No, no. Paul says meekness is what's important. In fact, meekness, think about it, is a mark of Jesus' life. Uh, Jesus came declaring the kingdom of God, bringing salvation, yet he did it without force. He did it with meekness. It's a willingness to suffer injury, which he did, rather than inflict it. And, and it's a, meekness is, is a sense of being self-controlled, but it's a sense of being self-controlled. Why? Because we're controlled by God. We're actually God-controlled. And therefore, we're able to be uh, self-controlled. And then finally... In verse 12, 
The fifth virtue that Paul mentions is patience. Again, if you have a different version, King James, maybe even the New American Standard in front of you, the term there is long-suffering. That's not a word that we use often, but it speaks of endurance. It speaks of forbearance under the ill-treatment of others. It speaks of of a slowness in wanting to avenge wrongs. It speaks of enduring wrong treatment and putting up with exasperating conduct by others rather than desiring vengeance or flying into some sort of a rage. That's what patience is. That's what long-suffering is. That's what Paul is saying. Put on these five virtues, and that, in a sense, will be putting on Christ. And that is what will clothe you will dress you for success as you live life together with other believers. Once again, these five interpersonal virtues characterize our identity, our thumbprint as members of Christ's new community. It's how we look and how we act toward each other. Just this week I I saw another really good quote from a an up-and-coming author, Karen Swallow Pryor, who she actually teaches English at Liberty University, and she's recently released a, a brand new book on reading. But in that, she says, how do we go about cultivating virtue? How do, how do we do that? Through something we sorely need today, good habits. A person is not in possession of a virtue by exhibiting a trait now and then. It must be routinely practiced for it to be considered a virtue. Well, let's look at verse 13 because verse th- verse 13 shows us that as we put on these virtues, we're supposed to do something with them. We're supposed to move forward with them. So in verse 13, basically what Paul is saying is uh, these virtues are going to get fleshed out day to day, active, ongoing behaviors. He's using participles here, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. That's active, that's ongoing. So we we bear with one another. In other words, we put up with each other. We endure each other mutually, reciprocally. And, And that's a first and necessary step in building Christian community. Sometimes that's where we have to start. We have to start with just kind of putting up with each other first. I want you to notice there's, there's a progression in this verse. For the sake of maintaining community, we, we have to do that. Um, and we do it with people that we may or may not normally associate with. Think about that. That phrase in our core values of we're close enough to each other that we frustrate each other, well, that means we're, we're close enough with people that maybe are not quite like us. Our life groups at the Westland campus in here, they, they may not consist of the normal group of people that I like hanging out with. There might be people in that group that are quite different from me, a very different background from me. It may not be part of my preferred group of friends, but that God puts us together in order that we might bear with each other for the sake of community. Living life together can get messy (laughs) because life is messy. And so we live that together. And that has to occur on more than just Sunday morning. It's too easy to kind of blow in and blow out of here with, hey, how are you doing? Good, great, great to see you. Okay, bye-bye. Or, or even meeting once a week with a group of people over a meal. 
That's good. That's a great start. But what Paul is asking for here, what he's charging us with here in verse 13, is that we, we go beyond it. We bear with each other. And then look at the next point. Look at the next participle, the next action word. We're to forgive each other. That means we extend grace to one another. It, it conveys the idea that it's an, it's an act of giving grace. It's freely offered, even though it may not be deserved by the person that we're giving it to. And it's ongoing. It's unceasing. It's unwearying. Life groups provide the context for that kind of stuff to go on. They really do. And that's why we're making this emphasis today, last week in Westland and today here, on getting engaged in that kind of a, a context or a venue where we can begin to really apply these things that are very, very important to our identity. Life groups provide that primary context for, for pastoral care. There are things that happen frequently at our church that I don't hear about until after someone from somebody's life group has already gone. They've already been at the hospital. They're already aware. They're already on top of it. That is awesome because it's the body of Christ being the body of Christ. It's men and women engaging with each other, living life together, not waiting for the paid pastoral staff to sweep in and do whatever they do, right? It's, it's living life together. Uh, life groups become, in a sense, you could say, the, the first responders uh, to needs. This takes sacrifice. This takes discipline. But you know what? It produces amazing joy as we live life together. We're back to identity. This, this is part of our identity as new life. And so um, building this type of community, living this type of life together. I was talking with Pastor Scott about this a couple of weeks ago. He said, you know what, Tim? He goes, this may be the one area where the church and specifically New Life Church, has a, he said, a competitive advantage over what the world has to offer. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? A psychology lecturer at the University of Oxford recently claimed this. If someone were to create a technology that mimicked the sensation of being close to actual people, they'd enjoy massive financial success. That's fascinating. And in reality, that's happening. Artificial intelligence and that whole that whole movement is is a, a, a an attempt to create a technology that mimics this sensation of actually being close to people. The operative word, though, in artificial intelligence is artificial. It's it ain't real, folks. Okay, but what is real is what happens day in and day out, week in and week out, as we live life together within the context of the body of Christ, within the context of this church, this campus, and the life groups that you may be a part of. Well, how is this even possible? These five virtues, fleshing them out in day-to-day -day contact with each other. How is this even possible? Verse 14 answers that question. Verse 14 shows the centrality of love, shows the centrality of agape. Paul writes, And above all these... The previous five things, above all these, put on, he's using the, again, the, the idea of putting on clothing, put on love. And then he mixes metaphors, he switches analogies mid 
sentence. He says, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And he uses a term there that speaks of ligaments, the ligaments in our bodies that connect muscle tissue with bones and hold things together. That's what love is. That's what agape is. And he's using the strongest term for love here, that that love which is self-sacrificing, the love that was demonstrated on that cross by Jesus, once again, as our model. We put that on. We put on love. That's what uh, allows this kind of living life together to even be a possibility. Well, again, we're, we're back to identity. And again, I, I, keep, I keep bringing you back to this, this slide here because that's who we are as New Life Church. That's our thumbprint. Fortunately for us, Paul gets very practical. And in the remaining three verses, 15, 16, and 17, he lists some very specific how-tos. And he does this by using three imperatives or three command words. And then he sprinkles in a, a host of other participles or ongoing action words. In other words, all of life, everything about us, is to be lived out in obedience to these commands and these action words. Let's look at the, at the three. Two in particular I want to focus on. The first one is in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Well, what is that? Well, the peace of Christ is that pact, that agreement, that truce, that contract purchased by Jesus' blood. The peace of Christ. A couple years ago, Debbie and I just moved back to Portland from Bangkok, Thailand, and I wanted to kind of get a feel for the city. And so during Passion Week, the week leading up to Resurrection Sunday, what most people call Easter, uh, I went to a Maundy Thursday service. Anybody ever been to a Maundy Thursday? A few? We go to Good Fridays. In fact, we hold Good Friday services, but Monday, Thursday, what on earth is that? So I went. I went to an Anglican church because I wanted to see what, what was going on there. And after a teaching from God's Word, and just before they took communion, they, they do a thing called passing the peace, passing the peace of Christ. And so everyone stood and was encouraged to talk to their neighbors, people in the rows in front behind them. And basically, extend the peace of Christ. May the peace of Christ be with you. And may the peace of Christ be with you, too. Back and forth. It was, it was a great reminder of what they had just heard and what they were just about to do. This peace of Christ, this truce, this agreement, this, this sacrifice that Jesus had made for us. Well, Paul says, let that peace of Christ, let that rule in your hearts. I have struggled with that for many, many years. What on earth does that mean? Uh, is When we say let it rule in our hearts, what does that mean? <laughs> and I made a very fascinating discovery. And I want to illustrate that here this morning. Those of you that are football fans, you know what this is? Todd, what is it? It's, it's a not, challenge flag is red. This is a penalty flag. It's a penalty flag. This is what uh, referees keep in their back pocket, right? Now, I was going to do that this morning, but I thought that would look kind of strange. If I got up here, you'd be wondering the whole... You wouldn't be paying attention. You'd be wondering, what is he doing? So I hid it in a bag, right? But what I illustrate this point, because the term rule, the word that Paul's actually using, it literally means umpire or referee. And it referred to 
the Corinthian Games, the Olympic Games, when a decision needed to be rendered on the athletic field about whether a person was in bounds, out of bounds, had accomplished that or this or that, they would they would let the the the, the referee, the umpire, make that decision. So basically what, what Paul is saying here is let the peace of Christ be that umpire. So I'm going to toss this at Larry because, you may not know this, Larry paid, played football at Oregon State his freshman year, so he knows all about those kind of penalty flags, right? Because guys were always holding him, and penalties were always being made against him. But I want to illustrate that with that point, is if I have an issue with, with, uh, with Larry, if I've got a problem with Larry or Leslie... What am I to do? Paul says, I'm to let the peace of Christ. In other words, stop the action and let the peace of Christ come in and make and render the decision. Make the umpiring or the refereeing decision. One commentator put it this way, Wherever there is a conflict of motives or impulses or reasons, the peace of Christ must step in and decide which is to prevail. Let the peace of Christ rule. Paul says, secondly, that we're to be thankful. And again, I'm not going to go into detail on this, but this is the undergirding attitude, an attitude of thankfulness. It it crops up again in verse 16 and then again in verse 17. But I want us to focus on this third imperative, and it's here in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Literally, let the word of Christ dwell. Take up residence. Dwell in you means to take up residence, to inhabit, to be at home, and to do it richly or abundantly. I fear that too many of us believers in Christ, followers of Jesus, were too content to just um, subsist on spiritual snacks. Right? We just pick here, pick there. We we have favorite little verses that we like, and we don't really let God's Word, the, the Holy Word of God, to, to abundantly take up resonance in us. This begs the question, is, it, is, is the Word of God at home? Is it at home in our hearts? Is the Word of God settling there? Is the Word of God living in our hearts? You know, these virtues that we looked at earlier this morning... Uh, they're not the, the creation of a Greek philosopher. They're, they're directly from God's Word, right? And the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God that dwells within us. He uses that to efficiently and effectively guide us in our lives, in our decision-making. But He does that to the extent that, we're, that we know His Word, that His Word is at home in, in us. So if we're not giving the Holy Spirit enough raw material to work with, then maybe we're not as effective in making the decisions that God wants us to make. Uh, back in February, I was, had the opportunity to go to Ethiopia. I've gone a couple years now, and, and I teach church planners. And I had an, an audience of 65 young men. Actually, there were 60, 60 men and five women, young folks, Ethiopians, Way down in the south part of the country, coffee-rich region, and they were they were just hanging on every word. They're, they're, they want to plant churches. They want to get out. They want to get involved. They want to expand God's kingdom. But I challenged them to have a whole Bible perspective on that. Don't don't just take whatever speakers come through and share with. Don't just take these little snacks, spiritual snacks, and let that be your diet. Let the Holy Spirit uh, guide 
you in, in giving you a, a whole, what I call a whole Bible balanced spiritual diet where we we hear God's word, we read God's word, we study his word, we memorize it, we meditate on it, and then we obey his word. This is why New Life Church, historically and, and even present, we, we teach and preach through whole books of the Bible. You know, when we finish this series in a few weeks, we'll be going back to Romans. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 are not easy chapters to digest, let alone to teach. But we do it because it's in God's Word. The Holy Spirit has determined that diet, spiritual diet, within the book of Romans. And so we plow our way through tough passages so that we can better understand what it is that God wants us to do. Christ-like character is not formed from just a random collection of favorite texts and personal experiences. I call that the hallmark approach to spiritual maturity. You know, the greeting card approach. No, we need to digest whole books of God's Word, allowing the Holy Spirit, who wrote these books to begin with, who inspired these books to begin with, to determine our spiritual diet. Well, very quickly, I want to wrap up here with with an observation, if, again, if you have your Bible open, I want you to notice here in verse 16 that what results from having the Word of Christ at home in our hearts is that we end up teaching, admonishing, uh, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, and we do it with thankfulness. Does that, does that sound like anything? If it doesn't, it will after I, if I point this out to you. Keep your finger in, in Colossians 2 and just go back two books. Look very quickly at Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 18. In Ephesians 5, 18, and by the way, if you're not familiar with this, these two letters, Ephesians and Colossians, were written by the Apostle Paul at at about the same time and from the same location to two different groups of people, but it's quite likely that those two churches would have read each other's letters. And what he says here is, in verse 18 of Ephesians 5, do not get drunk with wine. He's, he's going to use drunkenness as an imagery, a picture here. But be filled with the Spirit. And notice what results from that. Beginning in verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always. Do you see the connection? Basically, the, the outflow of being filled with the Spirit is identical to the outflow of letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. So if anybody says, you've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit, well, great, how do I do that? We're back to this. We let the, God's Word be at home in our hearts, and that's what fills us with His Holy Spirit, allowing us to interact with each other. Between those Right in the middle of those four participles, teaching, admonishing, singing, and giving thanks there in verse 16, there's a little phrase that says what? In all wisdom. Do you see that? In all wisdom. Wisdom develops better in relationships, especially relationships where there are compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Do you see how Paul connects this whole passage back onto itself? Wisdom grows more in a community. Wisdom grows more in a relational environment. In fact, you could say wisdom is forged in the fires of committed relationships. You want wisdom? That's where you'll get it. 
in God's Word, but in the context of community. Finally, verse 17, the Apostle Paul concludes this, this beautiful, brief little section, concludes it with a very succinct but yet thorough uh, kind of a summary exhortation. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. If you're already uh, in a life group here from this campus, I'd encourage you to focus on verse 17 the next time you ask yourself the question, uh, why am I even going tonight? <laughs> is it is it worth the effort? To go to life group tonight? I don't want to go. I'd rather watch the game. Why, why am I even going? Focus on verse 17, and it'll, it'll bring a healthy corrective. What Paul uh, describes in Colossians 3 is the antidote for this epidemic of loneliness, this global epidemic. Living life together in Christian community is the answer that the world is seeking. This core value, again, of our identity at New Life, it's not just about a life group meeting once a week or two times a month at somebody's house. As good as that is, it's certainly way more than just coming together once a week for worship. Our desire at this church is, is that adults and teenagers and even children would find uh, rhythms of true community together. A life group is about people. It's not about a date on a calendar or a time during the week. It's about people encouraging, challenging, supporting one another collectively as we live life together. So that's why last week in Westland, this week in Wilsonville, this is life group kickoff Sunday. It's, it's life group launch. And if you're not in a life group, uh, guess what? I'm urging you, right? I'm encouraging you strongly to join a life group. There's a, again, there's a board out there that has photos of life group leaders. You can sign up for that. In fact, um, those of you that are here as a life group leader, if you're a life group leader or the, uh, maybe the host, maybe you meet at a different place, could you just stand? Just, I'm not going to have you say anything, but just stand. So that, um, if you're not in a life group, people can can look around and say, okay, cool, I know who they are now. Okay, great. Thank you. Ah, it took a while. Yeah, okay, we're all up. These are are current life group leaders. You can go ahead and take a seat. These are current life group leaders here at this church, and we'd encourage you to participate. They're going to be out in the foyer after the service. They'll be available so that you you can chat with them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, first of all, I want to... um, pray for these life group leaders that just stood and these hosts faithfulness in and their faithfulness in uh, opening up homes uh, days and nights on their calendar in order to live life together and to facilitate that here uh, in Wilsonville and so father would you bless them would you continue to give them wisdom stamina uh, as they continue to, to lead these life groups. And Lord, we, we, we also just want to express our gratitude to you, our thanks to you for so clearly uh, revealing to us part of what it means to live life together. Father, we, we are grateful that we're part of a church that's committed to this, 
that's committed to more than just meeting for worship once a week, but committed to living life together, even as the Apostle Paul has described it. Bottom line, Father, our desire is that you would be glorified through our lives, through the ins and the outs and the hard times and the good times of living life together as your people. We ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.